0: Welcome to Fretnot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fretnot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions in our field about the lessons that have defined their careers and help us to work out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process. So let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realize that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, a company with real heart, a fascinating history, and my string of choice. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. Today I'll be talking to composer, guitarist, educator, and conductor, Gerald Garcia. Gerald was born in Hong Kong in 1949, and despite taking piano lessons at a young age, he was mostly self-taught when it came to guitar. He studied chemistry at Oxford University, where he was able to further his passion for and formalize his dedication to the instrument. He went on to sell more than 50,000 copies of his 15 CDs and performed solo and alongside many famous musicians, including John Williams and Paco Pena. After suffering focal dystonia in the late 80s, he turned his focus to his already thriving composition career, introducing to the guitar world new staples in our classical repertoire. Gerald's works have been played and recorded by numerous musicians, including David Russell, Shufei Yang, and the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. Gerald is also musical director of the National Youth Guitar Ensemble in the UK which offers young musicians the chance to perform as an ensemble and undergo chamber music training. It's also where we first met when I was 13. Gerald, what's a lesson you've learnt that has been the most meaningful to you?
1: I felt that my hardest lesson was not being able to do what I loved doing
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: because of the injury. If I'd realized, you know, I was doing the best I could, that injury wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. But I needed to learn that. Mm. We can only do so much to uh, put off those sorts of experiences. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. I had to find another way to fulfill my love of music and the guitar. It wasn't an easy lesson to learn because... At certain stage in your life, you feel you can do anything, and mm-hmm. especially if you are good at something, but probably not as good as you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I also learned that uh, comparing yourself to other people is not helpful, because you know I wanted to be as good as the best player, and um, my my lesson was that actually, probably. I couldn't be.
0: Well, it was in 1988-1989 that the focal dystonia first presented itself. Had you felt it approaching for a long time, or was it more of a sudden experience, if you remember?
1: I I remember it well because I woke up one morning and I tried to play something, and I think this was quite a common experience. Uh, I found I couldn't do what I used to be able to do the day before. Mm. It wasn't a sudden thing, I think it happened over time and I think it happened in conjunction with me trying to improve my technique probably beyond what I can actually do and doing the wrong thing too many times and again I think that's quite a common experience.
0: Well I've been reading some information about physical injury in the field in preparation for this and I discovered that 80% of musicians suffer a playing-related injury in their lifetime, which is crazy, I think.
1: Well, well, it's only crazy when we don't hear about it until it's happened. I think, uh, as with sports, injury is actually very common in music. And the, the difference is that you can actually get along a little bit and do quite well with making adjustments which you feel uncomfortable with. And it's also difficult to tell other people, because you might well lose your job. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's surprising to hear, because most people, probably until now, um, have been reticent when they've discovered that they can't actually play the way they used to.
0: What was your immediate experience of discovering your injury? I know you were playing a lot at that time.
1: (laughs) Well, I had quite a few concerts lined up, some solo and also with Clive Conway, the flautist. So it's difficult to get out of doing something which involves someone else. Mm. In fact, I I didn't really want to not play, and so I kind of worked out little strategies using different fingers again i think you'll find this is quite a common thing with a lot of people that they'll work out a different way of using their fingers so they can play what they used to play and it doesn't actually sound too bad one common thing with guitarists is um, it's difficult to separate the fingers in the i and m if you've been practicing that in the wrong way too much it's very difficult to use those. So people end up using P and I or P and M or even using I and A, which actually is quite a good combination anyway. And I managed to get through a year or two, I think. That's even.
0: quite a lot.
1: And I realized that I was not improving with practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was a hard lesson for me because I, up till that point, I always was able to get better with practice, Mm. uh, as you hope. And I just got worse. Mm. So um, I thought, well, let's look at this. Uh, I actually heard from a student who was in a similar predicament, and I I couldn't understand it at first, but now I do. Mm -hmm. And he he actually explained to me, he'd looked into some research um, by Nancy Biles, who was doing research on monkeys, Mm. Doing repet- repetitive things with their fingers, and then dissecting their brains, which I, I, I imagine people would want to do with guitarists as well,
0: <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> yeah, mm. <laughs> and
1: finding out that um, you know a- areas of, of uh, their brains which previously had been separate, like mm-hmm. using the I and M mm.
0: uh,
1: uh, areas, were, were actually overlapping. Mm. So that was important research and, and important thing to know. But, but it, there was no, no guidance in those days, really.
0: Would you say then that there is a lot more research and information and better support these days than there was back then?
1: Oh yes, 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 certainly. Um, the first person I heard of who actually admitted to it and also, as far as I can make out, actually got over it was David Leisner a very important person in this respect because, you know, in many ways we, we had a um, similar trajectory. Mm-hmm. We both played Bill Lobos 12 Etudes in concert often. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and we, you know, he was also very good composer and um, a, a, a very active player. And he, he was also very ambitious, I feel. And we've discussed this and we, probably agree that people who get focal dystonia are actually extremely ambitious and often trying to do things before they're ready to do them. Mm. And nowadays, to answer your question, there, there are a lot more resources, let's say, for people with dystonia, although the, the causes of the condition are not totally understood because it may be from many different aspects of your character. But there's there's also a, a Spanish doctor called Joaquin Farias. Mm. He deals with many different musicians, brass players who have a problem with the lip, with the embouchure, as well as guitarists.
0: Do you think that with the ever-growing wealth of information and people who are now dedicating their lives to the study of the injury, that there's maybe a way for you personally to recover from your injury?
1: In fact, now I have a way through, probably, Mm. but it just means I need to practice. Oh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) damn it. (laughs) Um, I'd like to just briefly return to something you said, which was that the development of dystonia seems to be more common in people who are ambitious. Do you think that's because people who are ambitious tend to push themselves physically, or is there a purely mental component in the development of the disorder?
1: Well, the way I see it, um, there is a mental component because what happens is if you don't improve when you practice, it makes you worse. Actually, you, you have this feeling that you're always approaching a problem when you pick up the instrument. So you have to find out ways of loving your instrument again. Uh, in the first place, I think the, the main mental problem is not recognizing that you have a problem physically and trying to do things which are too hard and also um, wanting to improve and wanting to challenge yourself wanting to get better and to be the best in what you do normally that's quite a health healthy thing to want but when it becomes so that you're pushing yourself beyond your physical capability Mm. then your brain just says you know okay go on then i'll Mm -hmm. give up Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: Um, how did it feel being injured? What was your emotional journey throughout that time?
1: Well, I think the first thing it makes you feel is, gosh, you know, I, I can't do what I normally do and love doing. And that can be very depressing. Uh, luckily, it wasn't the only thing for me. I, I mean, I like doing lots of other things. And what it did do was actually make me a much better teacher because I felt I understood why people couldn't do things a little bit better because actually they couldn't whereas in the past I wasn't as patient with them as I could be. I, 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 be, I think I became a more sympathetic and a better teacher uh, trying to understand where people were coming from.
0: Gerald Garcia, what is a lesson that you would like to impart?
1: Find something you love. Find something which inspires you. Work out how you're going to do it any way you can. Then do it and do it your own way because you will be limited in physical, monetary, you know, lots of different ways. But find out how you can do it. I mean, as musicians, we're quite lucky because I think we know what we want to do. But... If that's taken away from you, if you have injury or, you know, you lose an arm or something, I hope not. But, you know, then you have to find other ways of fulfilling that or do something else, find something else to do. We're still capable of doing many, many things.
0: You talk a lot about passion. And I wondered during the time when you had your injury and actually also before, um, has your passion for guitar ever wavered?
1: Um, There's been some kind of fluctuation, but really um, there hasn't really been any deviation. I tend to look at everything I do in a musical, structural sense, from the beginning of the day to the end. The way the day is structured or the way a meal is structured when I cook, the way they use different ingredients or the way a picture is constructed, if I take a photograph or if I draw, if I write something, it's got to have a structure, and it's almost invariably something which I've learned from music, which is that repetition is never repetition because you've heard it already. All I'm saying is that in, in life as a music, um, there are many principles which apply.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you're always incredibly busy doing all kinds of things all over the world and your passions are incredibly diverse. I wanted to touch briefly on your conducting work, uh, which has almost always been with amateur groups. What draws you to projects of that kind, do you think?
1: There is a a kind of, I don't know, um, exclusivity about being a professional, which I instinctively rebel against, because in many cultures, music is just part of life. I mean, if you think of Latin American music, you know, almost everybody can play something, mm-hmm. almost everybody can sing something in, in a Latin American country. It's not anything you do specially. Mm-hmm. And it's you do it very well because it's something you love doing, and other people are taken by it, they're carried along by it. The most you could ask for is, when you perform everybody loves it Mm -hmm. the same way that you do Mm -hmm. so being a professional musician doesn't guarantee this in fact very often it has the total opposite effect people think of you like you know you're the high priest and you know you can't do wrong and you're actually dispensing wisdom now Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know it, it, it becomes an exclusive thing which locks other people out, which I really don't like. Mm-hmm. It's not what music mm-hmm. is for me. It's something to be shared and something which is common to all of us. I've learned a lot from the groups I've taught and whom I've conducted that being an amateur is a fantastic thing. And, if you, you know, the actual, I know it's a commonplace now, but the actual root of the word amateur is from amatore the lover and they do things out of love and mm. not mm-hmm. for money or for uh, recognition or to get anywhere they just love it so i've learned so much by being involved with people like this mm-hmm. and it's actually inspired me to love what i do more
0: I really do love that idea. I feel like I'm talking about this with a lot of people who come on the podcast. Um, How do you think we can democratize music just that little bit more so that people can fall in love with music the same way that we've been afforded the chance to? Uh,
1: I I, I don't know what the answer is, really, except maybe make music education more available Mm -hmm. and to give everybody the experience of playing an instrument which is almost, you know, like a human need, a human, well, it's a human need. Yes.
0: Mm. I do think social media has contributed quite a bit actually to the democratization process in the classical music world. It means we can communicate and there's a lot of people who otherwise might not have had a platform for whatever reason and can cultivate one through hard work. I wonder what are your thoughts on social media?
1: Ah uh, Well, I think it's a great opportunity for lots of people to make themselves heard, to do things without the interference of large corporate companies, um, to do something with, without needing a great deal of money, to take control of their own music and to disseminate it easily. There's also, of course, the other side, which is there's room for a lot of charlatans and people who just promote, who, people who promote themselves without actually giving any value to the community.
0: What defines giving value, in your opinion?
1: Well, it's dif- difficult to say. I mean, by their, by their works you shall know them. I, I mean, I think people who, who give in, in their music... You, you can tell, I, I, I think you can actually hear what they're doing, people who want to share. There, there's also, of course, you know, you know people you like better than others. and that's fine. you know if you, I think you have to be quite forgiving of people um, on social media because it is social. It's like our conversation now we are actually talking to each other. I, I, I don't care if it's through a microphone or how far away you are. I'm actually communicating with you. And therefore, uh, you know, in if we use social media to do the same thing, that's fine for me. If we have to do it through a TV screen, that's fine. We're there at the time we're having a conversation. A performance by its very nature is not much of a conversation because you're actually listening to what someone else is doing. Music being a social activity, it's Hardly ever like that. Everyone has a go, or they join in, or they talk in between, or they eat in between. You know, it's a social activity, and that for me is is actually as valuable as listening to a symphony by Mahler. Actually, uh, as far as human uh, feeling goes, and um, our our connection to other people. Um, As I say, there is a place for art music. It's like. You know, you have a, a beautiful piece of china which you appreciate. Somebody's made. You will never be able to make it. The only thing you could do with it is break it by accident. <laughs> All right. Um, in in social media, you can there's certain things you can appreciate better um, than others. I mean, uh, you know, sculpture in China you can't appreciate in the same way. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. Uh, cooking you, you can you can't appreciate except by looking at it. Uh, Music, you can appreciate, you can listen to it, and you can pay attention. The trouble with um, doing it at home is you're probably getting up and looking at your phone at the same time, right? Uh, And that's that's not necessarily a good thing, uh, because you're not giving the respect to the performer, which they Mm. deserve.
0: Value is a really difficult conversation, I think, especially when it comes to art and social media, and especially when those two worlds collide. It's actually just very difficult, I think, to really comment on what people are creating. And that's also in general, but especially these days, because the online market is so saturated. I know you've enjoyed the time for reflection over the lockdown period, uh, but I wanted to ask you, Gerald, what is a lesson that you are currently working on?
1: is the lesson I'm currently working on. Yes. I'm currently working on the fact that I can't always get up at 11 in the morning, then go down, have a cup of coffee, followed by lunch, and then a walk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That actually, in order to get anything done at all, I should get up a bit earlier, maybe 1030 (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: um, have my coffee mm-hmm. and then actually try and get down to some work rather than socialising with people. Mm. I, I actually have have got a couple of pieces I I, I need to write mm-hmm. and I I need to pick up the guitar now and again mm-hmm. to practice. Mm. So it that all takes time and by the by the end of the day, i.e wine time at seven o'clock I've done very little and then it's time to watch TV (laughs) so so my present lesson Mm -hmm. is to probably break out of that a little and and try and get a little bit more productive before Mm -hmm. seven o'clock in the evening
0: (laughs) Mm. is it something that you want to do you don't sound convinced
1: no I know this is very Mm. subversive because, you know, uh, well, I'm not a successful composer. So Mm. successful writers, composers, (laughs) artists, Mm. they all get up like, you know, really early. Actually, I stay up late or I used to a lot Mm. and Mm. do work then. So that's kind of equivalent. But Mm. that's sort of gone by the board with the pandemic, Mm. you know, I tend to end up watching telly until 1 in the morning and then going to bed um, <laughs> after having a bottle of wine. It's terrible, isn't it? This is Do not do this, folks. It's not good for you um, in any way. OK, so you must, in order to be successful, you've got to get up at 6.30 in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, do your work before breakfast, OK? Have breakfast at 7.30, mm-hmm. and then, then look at the news or whatever you do for half an hour, do a little bit of uh, correspondence, and then get back to work until 11 o'clock, have a break for coffee, Mm -hmm. work until lunchtime, have someone make lunch for you mm,
0: yes, so that yes. you
1: don't waste your time exactly. cooking. Exactly, yes. <laughs> and then get back into work at 2 o'clock mm-hmm. until 4, then have tea mm-hmm. for a little while. <laughs> then maybe go for a short walk, maybe half an hour to an hour. Mm-hmm. Then get back, then work until 7.30 when somebody will hopefully make you a nice dinner. Mm-hmm. Then you're allowed a little bit of entertainment That means looking through, if you're a guitarist, look through new music that you haven't seen before. (laughs) (laughs) When you've done that for an hour, then you can allow yourself to read a book. Uh. (laughs) Right. Okay, that's it. (laughs) That's my lesson. Yeah, that's my lesson. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lesson I'm working on. It's not going to happen, is it, before I die. (laughs) Which might be very soon if I carry on the way I am. (laughs) And don't forget, you only live once. (laughs) Mm,
0: Yes, YOLO. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I mean, now that you've brought it up, I've always found YOLO to be a bit of a weird one um, because it's always used to justify this kind of reckless behaviour. But surely if you only live once, it's even more reason to push for greatness and actually not do the things that might hurt or harm you or your future.
1: I know it isn't. Now, if you only live once, you have to be the best person you can be for that one lifetime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That includes um, involving other people quite often. Yeah. Actually helping other people as well, Mm -hmm. not just yourself. Unless you just live only once on your own on a desert island and you're self-sufficient without anybody else supporting you.
0: It's a bit of a long acronym though, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, it might work into the, I'm sure you could work out work an acronym out of that.
0: Yes, you know what I'll do? I'll listen back to this conversation and I'll work it out and put it in the description box for the episode.
1: Yeah, that would be good, actually. That'd be That would be excellent. I absolutely shall. So.
0: I will do it. And no one will understand what's happening at all. <laughs> And um, what will it be, yellow? Spl- I don't know, I'll work it out. Um, but YOLO is so strange. I think the feeling of entitlement to this sort of allocation of time on Earth is, is really odd. And there's also a kind of overarching implication that there isn't enough time in one life, which I don't know, but I have suspicions that that might be a phenomena of the digital age, that life feels so short and death feels untimely. I mean, even when we outlive our scientifically calculated life expectancy, I just find it so strange that so many people feel Mm. that they haven't had enough time to live out their purpose, and I wonder why that is. I don't think animals feel that way, but I mean, who knows?
1: Well, that's very interesting, because a lot of animals also, I believe, do accept their death Mm -hmm. eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, if you're a rabbit, and you get eaten by a fox. Mm-hmm. You get eaten by a fox, you just die, right? Yeah. You don't think, oh, my yeah. God, I haven't done the whole of Watership Down. Yeah. And I'm getting eaten by this blinking fox. Yeah. <laughs> right, you just give up, you just yeah. die. <laughs> so what can you do in the meantime, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. you know, I, I
1: I'm always amazed by the world. Mm. <laughs> That's one thing I'd like to say, that the world is an amazing place. And the fact that we are alive in it is something that we can't take for granted. Mm. And the fact that so many of my friends have died this year and in the last year means, first of all, that I'm getting old. But second, it Mm. gives me an appreciation of life. Uh, It's a hard lesson that is another lesson people mm-hmm. around you dying whom you know you, whom you've loved whom you feel maybe unlike the rabbit that they've gone too soon mm-hmm. that the way you honor their lives is by living yours in a good way that means as a real human being as a way of honoring your own life on this planet that mm-hmm. you're here
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, it's a beautiful life it's a beautiful place Mm. But we must learn our lessons. If if I, you know, one of my, okay, one more thing. Mm-hmm. I've always felt that I want to do something before something gets done to me. In other words, I want to make my life and other people's life as good as possible. Mm-hmm. Or else something might happen which will overtake me and make me regret what I haven't done. Mm. So do something Before it gets done to you. Sounds ominous? I don't mean in a nasty way.
0: (laughs) But you're going to do something. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Fret Not. Join me in two weeks' time where I'll be talking to Bogyung Byun about competitions, comparison, and how to deal with pressure.